Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. This morning uh, is a special service in some ways as we celebrate the ordination and installation of elders and deacons. This service, it will be an elder, um, and at next service, it will be a deacon. And I realize even with that little announcement, uh, there might be a lot of confusion because we come from a lot of backgrounds. So for example, what is an elder? What is a deacon? What is ordination? And what is installation? And so I briefly want to uh, describe those for you so that we're all on the same page. So first is an elder. An elder is a man elected by the congregation, as we did last week at our annual meeting, to oversee the spiritual care of the congregation and to serve the kingdom at large. Their qualifications and duties are listed out in those passages. Their, their ministry is primarily a ministry of the word, that out of love for Christ and for Christ's church, an elder is to guide and instruct, to shepherd, and even to correct uh, the congregation according to the word of God. They are to pray for and with the congregation and seek the spiritual care of the congregation. That is an elder's duty. And then there are deacons. And a deacon is a man elected by the congregation to oversee the physical needs of the congregation and the community at large. Uh, their primary ministry is the ministry of mercy. The word deacon literally means table waiter or servant. Uh, in Acts 6, we see the establishment of deacons. And in the establishment of deacons, uh, we also get an idea of what the role of elders are as well. In Acts chapter 6, the church is growing and blossoming and booming. And it says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so there was so much physical need out there that the apostles and the teachers couldn't stay up with it. Verse two, it says, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, diakonos, that's the word. And so you see here that the apostles are, are tasked with the, the teaching of the word, the ministry of the word, much like elders are. And the deacons are tasked with the ministries of mercy. So verse three continues, says, therefore, brothers, pick up from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Talking about caring for the poor. Verse four, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Again, a description of elders. Verse five, and what they said, please the whole, con the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas and a proselyte of Antioch. And so one way to think through it is that elders' primary ministry is ministry of the word, and that is their major, and their minor is mercy. And with deacons, their major is mercy, and their minor is ministry of the word. Now, what about this word ordination? 
verse 6 says, they, then these they set apart, uh, sorry, these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid hands on them. This is an ordination service. This is how, how men are ordained to elder and deacon. Hands are laid upon them and they are prayed over, set apart and commissioned uh, to the office of elder or deacon. And then verse 7 shows the fruit of this. It says, and the word of God continued to increase in the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became, sorry, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so you see as elders and deacons work together, it expands the kingdom of God with the proclamation of the word, but also deeds of mercy and care for those who are in, de- who are in need. So we talked about elder, deacon, uh, ordination, finally is installation. What installation is, is it's, it's putting someone at a particular place. So uh, a week ago, I, I installed blinds uh, in, in my house, and I installed them in particular windows and said, this is where you go, right? This is where you serve. This is where you do your thing blind. And the same way when we install an elder or deacon, we are saying, this is the church that you are serving at. And so an elder and a deacon are only ordained once in their entire life, but if they move to another church, they may be installed at another church there if they are elected to be an elder or deacon at that congregation. And so with all of those definitions in mind, elder, deacon, ordination, installation, I want to say again, today is a special day in which we celebrate the ordination and installation of elders and deacon. And the reason why this is such a joyous occasion uh, is because we are a needy people. Uh, Because we as a congregation, which are there's probably four to 500 people that would call Jacob's Well Church their home. We have great need for spiritual care. We have great need for physical care. But then there's also great need even outside the walls of the church. And if this was all limited to the pastoral staff of the church, uh, you would be sorely disappointed. And so the elders and the deacons are a representative of God's tender care for his people and for the community that we are in. But it is also a joyous celebration because it is proof uh, that the gates of hell shall not prevail. It is a proof that God is going to continue his church onto the next generation and the generation and generation after that until he returns again. And so today's sermon is directed towards uh, Alex in some senses, uh, but it's also directed to all of us uh, because it's directed to those who are called in Christ church to be leaders in his church, to be leaders for Jesus, whether that be an elder or a deacon or a mom or dad at home or an older brother or an older sister at home or as someone who leads in the children's church or leads in all these different ways. This passage today shows us what it means to be a leader for Jesus. As, as Jesus calls Matthew to be an apostle and eventually a leader in his church. And so if you would please open up to Mark chapter two, Uh, we will be looking at verses 13 through 17 today. It's page 837 in the red Bible. If you have a red Bible, if you don't, (coughs) excuse me, if you don't have a Bible, you'll need one, go ahead and grab one from the back and it is page 837 in that Bible. Um, By way of reminder, just prior to this passage, uh, Jesus has healed a leper uh, and he has Uh, forgiven the sins of a paralytic, which he has proven by healing the paralytic as well. And from that, we receive the good news that that the Lord Jesus is not only willing, uh, but he is able to cleanse you from your sin and to forgive you of all of your sins. 
Now his ministry continues, and we originally were going to go through uh, a later verse down through the end of the chapter, but now uh, we're just going to go today, um, verses 13 through 17 uh, will be today's passage, as we look at what it means to be a leader for Jesus. So Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at your call upon Levi, also known as Matthew, Lord, as we look at your call upon him to come after you and to be one of your leaders in the church, God, may we see how our call is similar and that when we are called to be leaders for you, wherever that sphere might be, God, that we have the same calling as, as Matthew in many ways. And so, Lord, may we, may we learn, may we learn what it looks like to faithfully serve you and lead for you in whatever context you have us in. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The past two years has been a hard time on leaders. Uh, no matter where you are leading, no matter what your viewpoint is, it has been hard for leaders, whether it be in the business world or in the church or in the Pinochle Club. It really doesn't matter. Wherever you have been a leader, it has been hard to be a leader, especially over the past two years. Over the past two years, I have listened and read more about leadership than I ever have over the past 42 years of my life because it has been such a hard time to be a leader. If I were honest with you, there are many times I wish I could no longer be a leader in Christ's church. I wish I could simply fill the pew, teach in children's church, and leave all that leadership stuff to other people because it's so hard often to be a leader for Jesus. But those who have been called by Jesus are called to this noble and difficult and hard and glorious task of being a leader Again, inside the church, outside the church, in the household, wherever you are to be a leader for Christ. And oftentimes we like to shrink back from those responsibilities so we don't have to deal with the difficulty and then we can judge the leaders who do. As an elder, a deacon, a pastor, or just a Christian, we are called to be leaders for Christ in the spheres that God has put us in. And if there is one thing that I could say to you today, if there was one thing, only one thing that you would remember today about being a leader for Jesus, it is this one thing, that if you want to be a faithful leader for Jesus, you must first be a faithful follower of Jesus. If you wanna be a faithful leader for Jesus in whatever realm God calls you into, you must first be a humble, hungry, dependent, follower of Jesus. Now, 
In what ways are we to follow Jesus? Well, there are many ways that we are to follow Jesus, but there are two in particular that I wanna highlight from today's passage. The first is this, that if you want to be a faithful leader for Jesus in whatever realms God has put you in, you must first follow Jesus by forfeiting worldly comforts. Look at verse 13 with me. It says, he, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, that is the Sea of Galilee, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Levi's name is also Matthew, okay? So Levi, Matthew, Matthew, Levi, same person. Sitting at the tax booth, and Jesus said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him, excuse me. Now, verse 13 at first glance may look like kind of a throwaway verse that Jesus was by the sea teaching, but I think it is a very important verse for this context. You see, the Sea of Galilee uh, is where the fishermen hung out, right? It's, it's, there's a huge fishing industry in the Sea of Galilee. And so sometimes people would come out to hear Jesus, but for the most part, it was fishermen that were listening to the teachings of Jesus. Now, remember, at the time of, of Jesus, uh, he was calling apostles onto himself, disciples onto himself, and the first four disciples Jesus called to himself were all fishermen. They were all fishermen. Simon Peter, John, James, and Andrew were all fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. The next two disciples that he calls were faithful Jews, uh, men that, that loved the Lord, that loved Yahweh, that were looking forward to the coming Messiah, and so this would have been a cozy, tight, new group of, of people, uh, of six men, uh, Jewish fishermen, other Jewish believers, and, and they would have had a, a warm and respectable and friendly relationship with one another. Now, given Jesus' proximity to the Sea of Galilee, what we find out is that Jesus disrupts their comfortable relational ecosystem. As Jesus walks by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus sees a man in a tax booth whose name is Levi or Matthew. And so this tax collector, um, just to give you an idea of, of what he did, uh, he, he would have been kind of like a person at a toll booth. I, I don't know about you, but I hate toll booths. Uh, I drove around the whole state of Oklahoma just to avoid toll booths one time. I hate toll booths. But what his job would have been would have been a toll booth on the fishermen. And so when the fishermen came back with their catch, he would count it and he would tax them on that catch of that day. And so some days he might say, yeah, the, the taxes are 5% today. Sometimes he'd say the taxes are 10% today. And they'd say, why did it raise? And he'd say, just because it did. And there was no recourse for him for raising the taxes on that. And so, and so tax collectors were basically considered the scum of the earth by fishermen. They were dishonest, they were manipulative, they were opportunistic. They would take advantage of these men who were working hard to provide for their families just in order to make themselves rich. Furthermore, Jewish tax collectors, Jewish tax collectors were considered traitors. They forsook their allegiance to the Jews and to God in order to partner with the occupying Roman Empire. And again, they did it for money. Because of their treason, they were no, welcome, no longer welcomed in the temple, no longer welcomed in fellowship with the Jews. They were no longer invited to parties. And oftentimes, Jewish parents would actually disown their children for becoming tax collectors. That's how bad it was. 
But here's the point. If the first six apostles had a dartboard, Matthew's face would have been upon it. Matthew was their arch enemy. Matthew was, Matthew was the scum of the earth. Matthew was a person that had taken advantage of them and hurt them and manipulated them. And so here Jesus disrupts the friendly, little, comfortable apostle ecosystem to call this traitor Matthew to himself. To think of a modern day example is, is kind of hard to do, but imagine if, if you are following Jesus, imagine Jesus here, you're, you're following him, and Jesus finds a man who was born in America, converted to Islam, and now is a terrorist or an enemy of America, and he calls him to come and to follow him. And so if you're following Jesus with this person, I don't know about you, but I'd probably sleep with one eye open. I'd be a little bit scared. This is the context of what's going on here. Jesus calls someone that was so uncomfortable for the current apostles that it disrupted their, their cozy little apostolic ecosystem. Being around people not like us is one of the hardest things about following Jesus. But it is also one of the most beautiful things about following Jesus. We are called to follow Jesus with people on the other side of the political spectrum. Yes, Republicans with Democrats and Democrats with Republicans. We're called to follow Jesus with people who have different interests than we do. You know, I love country music and sports and there are people that love poetry and rap and I just don't get it. We're called to follow Jesus with people who are in different life stages, high school, college, young adult, all the way through retirement. I'll be honest with you, our community group, which is the best community group, just so you know, but our community group, which is the best community group, is so diverse, so different, that if it weren't for us following Jesus, we would never hang out together. I don't mean that in a bad way. I love my community group. I wouldn't trade them for the world, but we have people that are single, people that are married, people with kids, people without kids. I mean, our, our family is, is so unique within this ecosystem of our community group that, that we are not like a lot of the rest of them, and they are not like us, but it is wonderful and it is beautiful because what happens is if we follow Jesus, he's going to disrupt our comfortable ecosystems of only hanging out with people that are just like us. And so here's the question for you. Do you only hang out with Christians that are like you? Do you hang out with Christians of a different political party? Do you hang out with Christians with different marital status or age or skin color? Do you hang out with Christians of different denominations and different interests? Or do you just hang out with Christians that are like you? To faithfully follow Jesus, we must forfeit the worldly comforts of hanging out with Christians that are just like us. Now, not only does uh, the calling of Levi, Matthew, disrupt the comfort ecosystem of the current apostles, but it also disrupted Matthew's life pretty considerably as well. Look at verse 14 with me again. It says, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, Matthew, sitting at the tax booth, and Jesus said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Uh, and, and, and Luke's account, it says, and leaving everything, leaving everything, he rose and followed Jesus. You know, up to this point, Matthew had forsaken family. He had forsaken his religion. He had forsaken his people, his friendships, everything just to gain the riches of being a tax collector. But now, 
he has found something so much more beautiful than the riches of this world that he is forsaking the riches of this world to follow Jesus. He's forsaking the financial comfort of being a tax collector. It's recession-proof. He's rich. He's, he's forsaking the status of being a tax collector with the Roman Empire because he has found one that is greater than riches and status. He has found Jesus. And so Jesus simply says, follow me, and he does. Now, I think Matthew had, I mean, I can't imagine Matthew had not heard about Jesus. Maybe he overheard the teachings of Jesus. Everyone was talking about the miracles of Jesus. So I don't think Jesus just showed up out of nowhere and said, follow me, and he did. <laughs> but Matthew saw in the teachings and the works of Jesus so irresistible that he left everything to follow him. For elders, for deacons, for pastors, for all who follow Christ, how can we be faithful leaders for Jesus? Well, it's by following Jesus, by forfeiting the worldly comforts of simply sticking within our, our friend groups that are like us. And by forfeiting the comforts of this world. To faithfully follow Jesus, it may mean at times you have to forfeit binge watching Netflix to love and care and reach out to your hurting neighbor. It may mean you have to forfeit a bigger house or a nicer car to give generously to those in need. You know, Jonathan pointed this out a few weeks back when he said, when, when Jesus called the first uh, apostles um, and, and, and they left their boats, they left everything to follow Jesus. And, and what Jonathan said, which I won't forget, which was so good, he said, it does not speak so much about the greatness of their faith to follow Jesus, it speaks about the greatness of Jesus. Jesus is so glorious, so wonderful, that to forfeit everything in this world to follow him is gain. It's gain. I love that line from that song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim, the light of his glory and grace. And so how can we be a leader for Jesus? Only by following Jesus. And one way we follow Jesus is by forfeiting the earthly comforts for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. The second way, and I only have two points this morning. The second way to be a leader for Jesus is to follow Jesus by feasting with sinners. Look at verse 15 with me. It says, and as he, Jesus, reclined at the table in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, that's the smartest of the Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, again, another account says they grumbled, but they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors, and sinners. When Jesus called Matthew to himself, Matthew's first inclination was to gather together all of his acquaintances, I'm not sure I'd call them friends, but gather together all of his acquaintances, all of his tax collectors, and all of the sinners that he knew, and bring them together that they might just experience a little bit of Jesus. This term sinners and tax collectors is a phrase that was commonly used throughout the New Testament to talk about the worst people in the land. People that were truly beyond the redemption of God. 
Tax collectors, as we already explained, betrayed their own people, taxed their own people, formed allegiances with the oppression of the Romans. Sinners is just a general term for people that lived a very sinful lifestyle, that were not religious in any way, shape, and form. And so if, if this meal, if this Matthew meal was happening in Green Bay, you might walk in on a restaurant and walk to the back room and you see Jesus. And next to Jesus, you see this unethical builder who takes money under the table hosting this party. Next to him, you see, you see the guy who owns two or three adult bookstores in town. And then you see the girl who works at the Oval Office. And then you see the guy who just got his fifth DWI. And then you see the guy who is a registered sex offender. And then you see the obnoxious woman who doesn't stop talking about herself. And then you see the same-sex couple from your neighborhood. And then you see the dirty politician. And the list goes on and on and on. These are the people that Jesus was gathering to himself, that he was feasting with and enjoying this meal with. And the religious people were appalled. You see, in Jesus' day, to eat dinner with someone was, was very intimate. It was a very intimate communion with them. The same is really still true today. I mean, I, I'm not going out to dinner with a woman by myself unless it is my wife or my sister or my mom, right? Like, I'm not doing it. Why? Because to break bread together is intimate. It's intimate. And Jesus was being intimate with sinners and tax collectors and the religious people grumbled. Furthermore, Jesus feasting with these unclean people would have potentially been viewed as making him unclean and his apostles unclean so they could no longer go into the temple or synagogue without having the cleansing rituals done. See, when you are called to be a leader for Jesus, it is very tempting to take that position and to just hang out with other leaders or to fellowship with the clean and the sanitary and the civilized people of the world. But Jesus, Jesus eats with those that the world thinks is beyond redemption. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. You know, in the summer, I, I play on a softball team. No one from our church is on the softball team, which I love just being in the community with people. And uh, this softball team is full of kind of like good guys, right? Just really good guys, uh, family men who love their wives, love their kids. Uh, many of them go to church. Some of them are, are Christians. Uh, they're just great guys. And so after we have a softball game, we'll go into the parking lot and drink some water, Gatorade, stuff like that. And, and we'll hang out for just an hour and talk about life and catch up with one another. Uh, uh, even on non-softball days, uh, these guys will call me and they'll take me and my sons fishing. Like we have this great relationship. It's this great group of guys to be around. Well, this year, I, I got called a couple of times by one of these guys to play in his fall softball team. And I was thinking it would be very similar, just a great com camaraderie of these great guys to hang out with. But when I showed up, I saw it was far different. Uh, some of the guys showed up to the game drunk at 615, uh, which means they were working drunk all day at work. They smoked, they chewed, they spoke vulgar language, um, they said things about women that were detestable. And to be honest with you, when I was around those guys, I just felt kind of dirty and I just wanted to get away. I wanted to run away. I wanted to go home where things were a little more sanitary. After one of the games, they said, hey, uh, 
why don't you come out with us? Let's go, we're going to get wings. You wanna go with us? And I'm like, no, no, I'm good, I'm good. I don't wanna be with them anymore because they were so dirty, so unclean, so unsanitary. I'm saying this to my shame, this is repentance. Jesus loves to eat with sinners and tax collectors. You know, one of the accusations against Jesus by the religious leaders was that Jesus was a friend of sinners. That was the accusation against him, that Jesus was a friend to those whom the world thought was beyond redemption. When I was in college, I was accused and looked down upon for being a friend of sinners because I was in a fraternity house and I loved it and I loved the guys and I loved Jesus. But 25 years later, there are no longer those accusations cast at me. Nobody is accusing me of being a friend of sinners. I love to hang out with non-Christians, but the sanitary type. Alex, church, don't hear what I'm not saying. All of us need to draw certain boundaries based on temptations in our life. If you struggle with alcoholism, don't go to the bars. If you struggle with gambling, don't go to the casinos. If you struggle with drugs, don't go to certain neighborhoods of the town. But let me ask you this. Can you be accused of being a friend of sinners like your Savior was? Are you hanging out with people who proud religious people would look at you and say, uh, what are you doing with them? We talked a little bit about this last week at the annual meeting if you were here. But one of the challenges from the elders this year is that, is that everyone in the congregation would consider having 12 Matthew meals this month. And I'll give you more details about it next Sunday. But basically what we are challenging you to do is to hang out with those folks that you suspect are not Christians. Hang out with those folks that the religious people would say, what are they doing having them over to their house for dinner? And one of our hopes for this is that we would break free from our clean, comfortable circle of friends and that the people of Jacob's well would be accused of being a friend of sinners. Verse 16 goes on and it says, and the scribes of the Pharisees, that is the smartest of the Pharisees again, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, the only reason why they could ask this question of why Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners is if they did not consider themselves to be sinners. They considered themselves to be righteous before God because of their religiosity. You know, we too are a very self-righteous people. I mean, self-righteousness is kind of like body odor. You can smell it easier on someone else, right? But have you ever said, oh, I would never do that? I can't believe that person did that thing. I would never do something like that. Or said to your kids, man, when I was a kid, we would have never thought about doing something like that. Or have you ever thought, you never say this out loud, but have you ever thought, if only everyone was a little bit more like Self-righteousness is over all of us. We are all self-righteous in some way shape or form, but there is hope for us. Look at verse 17. It says, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
This is a very provocative statement by Jesus because basically what he is telling the scribes and the Pharisees, the most religious people, the smartest people, what Jesus is saying is, I did not come for you. I did not come for those who are comfortable in their self-righteousness. I came for those who are unrighteous and those who are repentant of their self-righteousness. And he has come to feast with sinners. And we celebrate that every Sunday here at Jacobswell Church as we come to the Lord's table. As sinful human beings, we come to spiritually feast on Jesus and to spiritually feast with Jesus. This is a table for sinners and tax collectors who repent of their unrighteousness and for those who are self-righteousness and repent of their self-righteousness. This is a table where we commune with Jesus. This table is a table that reminds us that Jesus is a friend of sinners. I, I read an article this morning. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna try to summarize it. But, uh, but it's, the article is from 2013, and uh, it's by a woman that many of you have heard of, Rosario Butterfield. We have a book out there now on her, by her on hospitality. Uh, but the name of the article is My Trainwreck Conversion. So Rosario Butterfield was a, uh, was an, uh, was, was a professor at a major university, um, and she was very uh, much on the liberal perspective. Uh, she was very much a proponent of the LGBT community, and even lived that lifestyle very proudly, very openly. Um, but she said that, that, that she would have these Christian students, and these Christian students would, would use these Bible verses as like clubs to beat her down. And so she hated the Christians. Uh, it, it really came to a, a point when she was, re, when she was watching uh, a Republican convention, and, and one of the religious leaders of, of the time, uh, one of the Christian pastors of the time, uh, said feminism in a sneering way. Feminism encouraged women to leave their husband, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. And so she was just so angry. She was so angry, and so she sought out war against the unholy trinity, she calls it, of the Republicans and of the, the patriarchal system and against Christians. And so she wrote this article. She wrote this article to kind of proclaim what she believed and she received all of this mail. Some of it was hate mail. Some of it was, was uh, fan mail. And so she would take the mail and she would put it in one bin, one bin for hate mail, one bin for fan mail. <clears throat> but then she received one letter that was unlike all the rest of the letters. And it was from a pastor in her community who very kindly and winsomely asked her questions and sought to know her and understand her. And she took that letter and she put it in the recycle bin. But she kept thinking about that letter. And so she pulled it out and she put it on her desk where that letter haunted her for two weeks. It wasn't fan mail, it wasn't hate mail, it was someone who was coming to know her and to engage her and to love her. And so after some time passed, she contacted the pastor and he invited her over to his house for dinner. And so she came into his house for dinner, and so he and his wife and this woman were together. And, and she said the way that he prayed was like she, a way she never heard anyone ever pray before. He prayed repentance for his own sin. 
He prayed with intimacy before God. He prayed with tenderness and compassion and love. For two years, they got together to eat together at these kind of Matthew meals to talk about life and, and truth and, and what is right and wrong in the world. Finally, after two years of being with this woman, she came to church and she describes it like this in her conversion to Christ. She says, I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. I counted the cost and I did not like the math on the other side of the equal sign. Here was this woman that the broader Christian church was casting aside, that was saying, she is a sinner. She is irredeemable. She is not worthy of our love or our compassion. We are going to condemn her, judge her, and call her out at a national convention. And yet there was this one man and woman, this pastor, who knew that to be a leader for Jesus, he must be a follower of Jesus. And a follower of Jesus would feast with sinners, tax collectors, so that they might know a little bit of the love of Jesus. Friends, here is the reality. If you will not feast with sinners, you will feast alone. Because sinners are the only ones that you have available to feast with in this world. And yet Jesus calls us to feast with those that those in the church would say are beyond redemption. This is a great challenge. Uh, this may be really scary, really intimidating for some of you as we encourage you to have these people into, our, into your house or to go out to eat with them or coffee with them. But there's good news. You see, this week, um, I'll, I'll end with this. Um, a, a friend of mine <laughs> who's in pastoral ministry, uh, he was inviting me to a conference, and I love this pastor, great guy, loves the Lord, dependent on the Lord. Um, he, he called me to come to this, he asked if I would come to this leadership conference, this church planting conference, and everything he was describing was really good. I was really excited about it. And then I asked him, I said, well, what is the name of the conference? And he said, the name of the conference is, you can do this. <laughs> that was the name of the conference. You can do this. And I'm sitting there thinking, uh, that's the worst name of a conference I've ever heard for church planting. Like, if I were to name a church planting conference, it would probably be, you can't do this. But the good news is, Jesus can. Jesus can do it through broken people like us. I mean, this is the heart of our faith, isn't it? Uh, every other religion says, you can do this. You can, you can be righteous enough, good enough to gain God's favor and acceptance and pleasure. But what Jesus says is, you can't do this, and I am going to do it on your behalf. I am going to come into this world. I'm going to forsake the treasures of heaven, the joys of heaven, the comforts of heaven. I'm going to forfeit those things to come into this world for you, to feast with sinners like you, and to take your sin upon myself and pay for it upon the cross, that now we can fellowship together at the Lord's table and in heaven for all eternity, because Jesus is a friend of sinners. This is the good news of the gospel. You know, John Maxwell, who is a, a, a leader in Christian uh, leadership and thinking and teaching on this, he says, a leader is one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. Knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. Christians, we know the way. 
Jesus is the way. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. We need to go the way. We need to be a follower of Jesus, but then we need to show the way. We need to love sinners and tax collectors because Jesus loves sinners and tax collectors like us. If you wanna be a good leader for Jesus, you must first and foremost be a follower of Jesus. Forfeit the earthly comforts to follow someone that is greater than all the earthly comforts combined and to feast with sinners and tax collectors, just as Christ does with us every Sunday here at the Lord's table. Let's pray. Lord God, so many times we wanna use our positions of authority and leadership not to serve sinners and tax collectors, but to serve ourselves to promote our own agendas, our own glory, our own riches, our own fame, our own popularity. Lord God, please forgive us and show us that to be a leader for Jesus in our homes, in the church, in the community, is first and foremost to be a follower of you. Help us to do that, we pray. And now Lord, as we turn to your table, we turn there with great joy knowing that you feast with sinners and you delight to do so. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.